For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right. So we're going to be skipping chapter two because I kind of want to group chapter two, seven, and eight together. They fit pretty well. So we're going to skip to Daniel chapter three, which I entitled Taking Your Stand with God. If you were with us the last time we studied Daniel, we talked about how to resist cultural conformity. And we talked about how God prescribes that we subvert the world system from within the system, that we don't try to overtake you know, our government or our, try to impose our views on our culture, but that we can actually transform our culture one individual at a time as we influence people for Christ. And so the question, I guess, that arises is, what, what do you do in a situation where you have your back against the wall and you're under intense pressure to conform? And we'll see in this story here in Daniel chapter 3 that Daniel's companions actually give us a practical picture of how to respond in this situation. So let's start in verse 1, Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So a little bit of background. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this incredible dream. And the dream consists of this statue made of several different types of metal. And he calls all the wise men and all of the scholars of Babylon to try to interpret this dream, and yet none of them can interpret it for him. And so he calls in Daniel, who has this incredible gift of interpreting dreams, and he interprets this dream for Nebuchadnezzar and and indicates to him that the gold head of the statue represents King Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom of Babylon. And that the rest of these different portions of the statue represent different kingdoms that will come. So it might be that Nebuchadnezzar was responding to this dream, perhaps by building a gold statue in commemoration of his kingdom. Well, we're told that by Daniel that he built this gold statue probably... This statue was made of adobe. We'll find out that this was actually a, um, a kiln, firing kiln. And so it needed to withstand uh, incredible heat. So it's, it's likely that they build this from adobe and then they gold-plated this statue. But this was an enormous statue, 90 feet tall. I mean, to give you kind of an idea, that would be sort of like, you know, a water tower. As, as tall as a water tower And it was probably a little bit wider than just nine feet at the base. This probably uh, contained a wider base, and then the statue itself was built on top of it that was nine feet wide. Well, he sent messengers to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races, nations, and languages, listen to the king's command. 
When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. So this wasn't just a demonstration of Nebuchadnezzar's absolute power. This was also a way for him to consolidate that power by getting all of the royal officials throughout Babylon to come and worship this statue. And perhaps Nebuchadnezzar was growing fearful in his heart that God would eventually topple his kingdom sooner than later. And so he was compelling these people to worship. The specific instructions he gives are, when you hear the music drop, the bodies better hit the floor. <laughs> he says, anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So they needed to do this under the threat of death. And you really see this throughout human history where totalitarian powers, once they seize power in a nation, oftentimes uh, will compel people to worship the state. You know, when you look at Daniel chapter 1, remember we read how Nebuchadnezzar seized different articles from the temple of God, and he put this into a museum along with other artifacts from other temples that he had conquered from different lands. And so we argue that by placing these gold vessels into this museum, Nebuchadnezzar was really relativizing the absolute. He was sort of relegating God among other gods. And really, you see this today where, you know, God, uh, the God of the Bible just really represents one of many gods out there. And truth is represented by your personal preference. So if you believe in something strongly, then that's true for you. But to say that there's an, an absolute out there, something objectively true, especially in the area of religion, that's very arrogant. But in this case, we see just the opposite in chapter 3, where he actually absolutizes the relative, where he takes something of relative value, this statue, and he makes it absolute so that everybody has to worship it. And we see the same pattern today where in our culture there's a driving force to relativize the absolute, to sort of relegate the God of the Bible along with every other world religion out there. And yet there is something within human beings that desires the absolute. And so often what people will do is they will take things of relative value and make it absolute. For example, you'll see people who will take a relationship and they will make something like that the absolute value by which they live their lives. Or they take something like money or power or success, or in this case, the state, and they elevate it to a place where it, it takes really uh, the place of God in their lives. You know, in this case, when, you know, and really throughout history, when a totalitarian leader gets it into his head that he must prove his invincibility, it's inevitable that others will suffer. And we see this 
particularly with Christianity, that totalitarian regimes have not been very friendly to the Christian faith. In fact, many people throughout the centuries, many Christians have suffered persecution and death under some of these totalitarian regimes. For 27 years, the International Bulletin of Missionary Research has put out a report called the Status of Global Mission. And it tracks a number of different things, but one thing it tracks in particular are martyrdom and persecution throughout the world. And they um, classify somebody as a martyr when a Christian believer, as a result of trying to share their faith in Christ, loses their life prematurely due to human hostility. That's how they define it. And based on their findings, on average, they suggest that 270 new Christian martyrs uh, show up every 24 hours, and that's been happening over the past decade. In other words, the number of martyrs in the period of 2000 to 2010, 10 years, was approximately 1 million Christian believers who have died as a result of their faith. That's a, that's a stunning number. So persecution, it's alive and well today, as much as it ever has been, maybe even more. You know, I think that um, most of us probably can't relate to this. We've never seen any of our friends or family members die because of their faith. We live, luckily, in a society, a culture that's pluralistic where there's to religious tolerance. And I think that's a really good thing. But I do think that we face incredible pressure in other ways. You know, you think about um, the grad student or somebody working in their career facing tremendous pressure to place either work or their graduate degree publishing papers, you know, as their number one priority. And if they don't place it as their number one priority, they often face undue criticism and uh, often, you know, get threatened. Uh, in other cases, you see people who, um, in the academic world, are afraid because of their beliefs to express their, their belief in Christianity because they know that that will cause them to encounter academic suicide. That if they say anything or espouse a view that contradicts a widely held scientific view or cultural view, that really they could end their career by doing that. And so there's intense pressure to conform under the threat of punishment. You know, put yourself in the, in the shoes of these guys, these three. You know, having to explain the situation to your family and friends. You can imagine them trying to talk you out of this, right? That you should just conform. You should, you should bend the knee. You know, they might say, we all know that this, is, this idolatry is bogus. I mean, if you, if you do the outward motion of bowing down, it's not like you believe this. It's not like Nebuchadnezzar's capturing your heart and your mind. You're just performing an outward action. 
Or if you refuse to bow and get killed, that will make the situation even worse. You hold a prominent position in the Babylonian government. And we're in the minority here, if you haven't noticed. How do you think we'll fare if you guys end up dying? Or, I'm sure some of their friends probably said something like, you know, think of your wife and children. Just, just bend the knee. Bow. You need to do this. Otherwise, what's going to happen to them? And you can imagine as Daniel's companions are contemplating what they're going to do, that the mental anguish they faced was growing as the time grew near for them to go to Dura and to worship. Verse 7, so at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Apparently, King Nebuchadnezzar didn't spot Daniel's companions. There's probably an enormous crowd there. But we're told some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They snitched on them. And... Um, these guys probably were the individuals that we read about in chapter 2 who Daniel embarrassed because they were unable to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he was. So they probably had an axe to grind, and they wanted these guys out. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and don't worship the gold statue that you've set up. It's not clear why Daniel isn't present in this situation. Maybe he was uh, away in a different part of the kingdom taking care of some business. Maybe at this point, Nebuchadnezzar installed him as a governor of a certain province. Either way, though, uh, these three men uh, were facing incredible pressure to conform. Um, you know, it says that they, uh, these guys claim that they refuse to serve your gods and don't worship the gold statue that you've set up. You know, this... This refusal to worship other gods comes directly from the Old Testament law that these guys had in their hands. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 and 5 clearly state, you must not have any other gods but me. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am jealous who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. According to the God of the Bible, to worship other gods, or to just worship the God of the Bible and some other gods, that really represents a betrayal. You know, bowing to another god really represents an act of spiritual adultery, according to God. You know, of course, today, we're not really tempted to bow down to like a wooden idol that we carved or something like that, most of us anyway. But Many of us do feel a temptation to place something else or someone else in the place of God. Where we have placed an aspiration that we have 
desire to obtain all of our lives as the number one priority in our lives. Or maybe we have a relationship where we have staked our entire identity into this person and where we would refuse to listen to God if it ever had any chance of threatening this relationship. For others of us, it's because, you know, we, we want to pursue money as our lifelong goal. And that's our number one priority. And so in a sense, when we place something other than God in first position in our lives, we are committing spiritual adultery, according to God. You know, you have to sort of think about it from his perspective. Because for us, it doesn't seem like a big deal that we want to pursue Lots of money and God at the same time. But from God's standpoint, that is adultery. You know, imagine if you were married and your spouse came up to you and said, I want to let you know that I love you. And I love you more than anyone else. There is no one else. But my boss came to me at work today and promised that if I sleep with him, that I can get a promotion. It wouldn't mean anything if I did this. And really, it would be beneficial for our life and our family. What do you think about that? How would you respond? You'd be like, hell no. Uh, You know, from God's standpoint, how do you think he feels when we say, you know what, I love you. I care about following you. But I want this other thing too just as much. It's an act of betrayal from God's perspective. Well, in verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I've set up? I'll give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments, but if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power. It's not real clear why Nebuchadnezzar gave these guys a second chance. Maybe he grew fond of them because he spent time with them. He knew that these guys were of good character, that they were capable men very gifted. Maybe he felt bad about executing these guys, especially since he'd invested so much into them to train them. It's not clear. But either way, um, he gives them this chance. And he says, look, I'm going to strike up the band one more time just for you guys. And this is your shot. You better bow. But in Nebuchadnezzar's rage, he betrays his motivation. He says, what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Notice, he doesn't say, who is the God who will deliver you out of the the hands of my God? He says, who's going to be able to rescue you from my power? It's clear what Nebuchadnezzar wanted. He wanted them to worship him. He represented the gold statue. And so, essentially, he wanted them to worship, and to sell their soul to him. And they refused to do it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
We don't need to defend our, ourselves before you. Uh, he, I don't think that they're disrespecting Nebuchadnezzar here, but they've decided in their hearts in advance that they weren't going to do this, even before they arrived in the plain of Dura. They said, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you've set up. We believe that God will rescue us, but just in case he doesn't, it isn't because he's unable. It's because his sovereign will doesn't permit for us to be saved. Either way, we don't care. We're not going to bow down. Doesn't matter what you do. You know, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, it must have been, it, it probably began to dawn on him that in a real sense, he was powerless against these men. I mean, he could kill them, right? But he couldn't compel them to bend the knee. He was losing control. And really, his whole scheme of getting people to bow depended on the assumption that they viewed their life as having absolute value. He made a, a crucial miscalculation that this decree assumed that people valued their life more than anything else. And yet, he, ha he happened to um, miscalculate that these guys viewed their lives as of relative value compared to the absolute value that they placed in God. And so Nebuchadnezzar's reaction was really a fury of impotent frustration. He knew that his tenure of power was limited because God predicted in Daniel chapter 2 that it was going to end. And now the exercise of that power was being challenged even as he was ruling by these guys. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that he, his face became distorted with rage he commanded the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. A little bit of explanation on this furnace. Okay, so uh, based, on, based on bas reliefs that we have uncovered through archaeology, these kilns were sort of shaped like glass milk jars where there was an opening at the very top. But there were probably two levels. The bottom level was where they would put the charcoal and the wood to heat up the furnace. And then there was a second level where they would, you know, smelt the ore. And that's probably where they threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the top level. Well, we're told that he commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. What they probably did was they inserted bellows into the bottom section of this uh, kiln and were able to heat up this furnace to a degree that they wouldn't be able to with a flu. And so um, some scholars of the Old Testament suggest that these kilns could actually get up to about 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, Nebuchadnezzar ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up, threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the men in. You know, there might have been a slight change of wind. And since this thing was so hot, it incinerated them. 
I don't know if you've uh, ever uh, had, a, you know, a massive bonfire. Uh, you shouldn't because it's illegal. But um, <laughs> if you've ever stood next to a massive bonfire, you know, even a slight change of wind uh, could cause you to walk away without eyebrows. And um, so this thing was so incredibly hot that these guys, probably because of a, tur- a slight turn in wind, just, just, you know, got fried. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames, sort of uh, indicating that uh, they were thrown into that upper story. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up these three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. So he was astonished, not that these guys survived the flames, but mainly because he noticed a fourth figure walking around, interacting with these three men. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. They're probably in there like, no, you come in here. (laughs) So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not even touched them. Not a hair on their hair was singed and their clothing was not even scorched. They didn't even smell like smoke. Um, Amazing. Well, Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who, who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than to serve their own or worship any other god except their own. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race, nation, language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're going to be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into a heap of rubble. There is no other god who can rescue like this. You know, I'm sure as the three men were standing there, they're like, uh... We're okay with just protection. You don't have to kill these guys. But if you insist. (laughs) Then the king actually promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher position in the province of Babylon. So there you have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing the fiery furnace. Well, we should draw some conclusions here. I think the first thing is You know, this story gives us a picture of biblical faith and courage to withstand these fiery trials. Hebrews 11, verse 34, the author states, by faith these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They quenched the flames of fire and escaped death by the edge of the sword, and their weakness was turned into strength. Clearly alluding to this event in Daniel chapter 3. If you ever carefully read through Hebrews 11, it lists all of these incredible heroes of faith and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make it on this list of guys who endured incredible persecution. Secondly, they they obeyed the powers that be as far as their conscience permitted them. It's a very interesting detail that these guys traveled to the plain of Dura. They traveled there, 
And even when their, con- their conscience was shouting at them, no more, they still responded respectfully to King Nebuchadnezzar, referring to him as their king. All the while, holding in their heart their loyalty to God as their true king. And so it really gives us a lesson that on the one hand, God wants us to show the kind of moral fiber that these guys possessed, but that we should do so respectfully and that we should cooperate as much as we possibly can. But at the end of the day, we should never compromise on our faith, no matter what the cost. You know, I was thinking about um, this incredible story. One of, um, a number of years ago, a high school girl um, faced some pretty serious persecution from her parents. Um, She actually exposed some abuse that was going on and her parents flew into a rage and banned her from coming out to any of our meetings. And so they stipulated, you can't come to any meetings, you can't talk to any leaders. And this was in the middle of her junior year, and so she was crushed. She, she, she was growing in her faith, was serving God. And so for about a year, um, her friends from her home church, her high school home church, would give her encouragement and pray with her in school. Uh, she was really sad that her junior year, she missed this epic camp that we throw every year. And so the leaders and the students wrote all these encouragement notes for her and gave it to her as soon as they got home. During this time, she was uh, working at uh, Little Caesars. And even though, you know, the leaders were unable to go and visit her, they felt a strong impulse to go and get hot, re- hot and ready pizzas uh, every single week. <laughs> and, um, you know, her parents finally said to her, look, you can do whatever you want once you turn 18. And so the moment she turned 18, she started coming back to fellowship, and now she's, you know, in the college group and doing really well. And so, you know, really, stories like that give you a picture of the kind of perseverance that God wants to see when we're faced with incredible persecution. That, you know, she respected her parents' wishes. She was under their authority, but she was unwilling to compromise her faith, even though they were pressuring her to do that. Third, we must count the cost of following Christ in advance. These guys, before they arrived at Dura, probably knew what they were going to do. And so we can't get caught off guard. We need to decide in advance, is God the most important thing in our lives? And when push comes to shove, where are we going to land? Are we going to take a stand for God or are we going to capitulate to pressure? You know, when you look at these three friends, it's interesting the way that they took this stand. First of all, they did it with one another. They did it together. You know, God gives us a spiritual community to withstand trials, to withstand persecution together. You know, God often provides encouragement and needed comfort through other people in the body of Christ. But that also requires us opening up and allowing people to come into our struggles, into the the fiery ordeal that we're facing. 
Secondly, these friends took a stand without putting conditions on God. Look at what they say in, uh, what they say in verse 17 and 18. The three say, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, we will never serve your gods. You know, so many of us subconsciously tell God, I will follow you so long as this thing, this circumstance turns out the way that I anticipate. Of course, we would never say that to him. But it expresses itself when we feel disappointment or anger toward God. God says, I want you to follow me without any sort of conditions. You know, a lot of times we will follow God when it's convenient for us or when it lines up with a desired outcome that we have in mind. But what if God has something different in mind for us, something that we don't see? Are we willing to trust him? Third, these friends took a stand based on God's written word. It's very interesting. A couple hundred years earlier, the prophet Isaiah wrote his book. And it speaks of this future time where the Israelites would actually be deported into Babylon. That's in the context of this passage here in Isaiah 43, verse 2 and 5. God promises when you walk through the fire of oppression, when you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And then he says, you are precious to me. You are honored and I love you. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. God promised these men, no matter what happens, even when you have to face the flames of persecution, even when you have to face losing your life to live consistently for me, don't be afraid because I'm going to be with you. That's what gave them the confidence that God would actually rescue them from the flames. And then also they took their stand based on God's power. You know, in verse 25, uh, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, look, I see four men unbound and the fourth one looks like a son of the gods. Now commentators argue endlessly about the identity of this son of a god. Um, But Nebuchadnezzar actually identifies this individual as the angel of the Lord. And if you've ever studied through the Old Testament, anytime the angel of the Lord comes up, this individual possesses the same power and authority as God himself, calling on people to worship him, decreeing things with absolute authority and power. And so most scholars of the Bible, students of the Bible, recognize this individual as pre-incarnate visitations of Jesus himself. And so it may be that, that the fourth man in there was Jesus. Either way, God was with them. And it's very interesting, too, because, you know, many people face suffering in the world. And yet, so many people suffer without hope. You know, you think about when these three men were cast into the fiery furnace. From a naturalistic standpoint, that was the end of the story. Their life was over. They gave their life for a cause that mattered. But God was able to rescue them. God was involved in the situation. 
And God says that he can take incredible suffering and use it for something incredibly redemptive. The Bible teaches that God, in the man Jesus Christ, came and suffered a terrible death, death on the cross, to pay for the sins that we deserve to pay ourselves. And that he did that because he loves us, because he wants to rescue us, not from just a crappy life here on earth, but to give us eternal life. Well, it's interesting too that God didn't deliver them from the fire, he delivered them in the fire. He didn't rescue them from the fire, he rescued them in the fire. You know, it's interesting, um, John Lennox tells this incredible story how after uh, the Iron Curtain fell and the Berlin Wall collapsed, that he started visiting the former Soviet Union on a regular basis and teaching the Bible there. And he encountered one man who spent a number of years in a Siberian camp, a gulag. And uh, he was there because he was teaching young children the Bible during the Soviet regime. And so as he was telling John Lennox this story, he was describing all of these incredible things that he saw, things that he didn't even want to mention because they were just so terrible. And he said at the end of it, uh, he sensed that, that Lennox was wondering to himself, I wonder if I could withstand that kind of persecution and suffering. And the man anticipated that and asked him, he said, you think you could handle something like that? You think you could endure it? Embarrassed, Lennox said, I don't think so. I'm not sure I could hold up under that kind of pressure. And the man said, neither could I. He said, you know, before I entered that gulag, I would faint at the drop of blood. He said, but in that camp, I met Christ. He met me there. And I experienced exactly what he told the disciples when he predicted that they would face persecution. So I think, I really want to leave you with three questions to ask yourself. The first is, what statues are you being asked to bow to? You know, is it your career? Is it loyalty to your family? Is it, you know, living for money? Um, Secondly, do you trust God to carry you through these trials, these times of persecution? You trust that God is going to bolster you and make you strong in your weakness. And finally, you should ask yourself, are your convictions for sale? Or have you determined in advance that you won't compromise no matter what, like these men? Yeah, Lord, I agree with that. I I thank you that we are in a country where we can, um, you know, follow you freely without the kind of persecution we see around the world. And, um, but we know that we will face uh, some hardships, that we will face intense pressure to conform, uh, even to the point where people will try to um, uh, 
coerce us or um, try to, um, you know, uh, put out bad consequences if we don't follow. And I pray that uh, we would um, settle that in our hearts, that we are going to follow you no matter what. And I pray that we would do this in a way that isn't odious, Lord, that isn't just, um, you know, offensive, but that we would do it respectfully as these uh, three guys did. And um, I pray that we can uh, be a fellowship of people who represents, uh, you know, a group of believers that show deep conviction in following you and that uh, it would be an attractive quality that people in the world see. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.